Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Throughout the Jewish world, the holiday of Sukkot will be celebrated for the next seven or eight days. And the Torah portion, which will be read on the first day of Sukkot, is from Leviticus 22 beginning with verses 26 through Leviticus 23, verses 44, and a supplementary reading beginning in Numbers, verse 12. What's unusual about this is that the cycle of Torah readings would normally have the Jewish community reading the last parashah, the last weekly reading of the book of Deuteronomy. But due to the cycle of Jewish festivals, we read a special Torah portion. Next week will be a double portion as it will conclude the story of uh, the Torah, the last parasha of Deuteronomy, and begin with Genesis. But for our conversation this morning, we're going to focus on Sukkot. And I will give you an overview of the reading from Leviticus. The reading begins with an injunction that a newborn calf or lamb or kid must be left with its mother for seven days, and one may not slaughter an animal and its offspring on the same day. The reading then lists the annual callings of holiness. That's the way the text refers to it. The festivals of the Jewish calendar, the weekly Shabbat, the bringing of the Passover on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, the seven-day Passover festival beginning on the 15th of the same month of Nisan, the bringing of the Omer offering from the first barley harvest on the second day of Passover, and the commencement on that day of the 49th day counting of the Omer, culminating in the festival of Shuvot on the 50th day. A remembrance of shofar blowing on the first of Tishrei, which was now known as Rosh Hashanah, a solemn fast day on the 10th of Tishrei, now known as Yom Kippur, the Sukkot festival, which is the festival that we are about to begin, during which we are to dwell in huts for seven days and take four kinds, four species, beginning on the 15th day of Tishrei, and the immediate following of the eighth day of Sukkot with a gathering called Shmini Atzeret. God declares in this week's Torah portion, the 15th day and the subsequent six days of the seventh month, to be a holy convocation. No work shall be done during that time. The reading then describes the Sukkot offerings which are brought in the holy temple. So I want to share with you 
some information about Sukkot and then speak about the meaning of Sukkot. Sukkot began as a Canaanite festival, superseded Passover among the biblical era Jews and won a disloyal king, a royal pelting with Etrogim. The Jewish holiday of Sukkot arose from a Canaanite agricultural festival, developing over the years into the holiday which we now know today, tabernacles, huts, and all. Some of the traditional customs and traditions, such as sleeping under the stars for the whole week, may seem strange enough to those who forget that the holiday originated in the Holy Land. So let's begin with some of the more unusual aspects of this holiday. Today, many Jews feel Yom Kippur, celebrated on the 10th of Tishrei, is the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. Passover is a solemn occasion for most Jews, and even Hanukkah, an extra-biblical holiday, has risen to predominance possibly due to its coinciding with Christmas. But it seems that in the times of the first temple, Sukkot was the most important holiday of all. How do we know this? Well, for one thing, Sukkot is mentioned a great many times in the Torah, often referred to as Hachag, the holiday. Also, the Jewish historian Josephus describes Sukkot as the most holy and important feast. And then there is the matter of sacrifice. In general, temple Judaism was a bloody affair, with different animals slaughtered and burned on the altar every single day of the week. But Sukkot was particularly bloody, surpassing all other holidays in the number of animals presented to God. How many animals, you might ask? Well, in addition to the regular slaughter, on Sukkot, the following were added according to the Torah. Seventy bulls, ninety-eight sheep, and fourteen deer. The closest holiday and number of animals offered is Passover, which is not even a close second with just fourteen extra bulls, ninety-eight sheep, and seven additional deer. Sacrificed animals were offered to God and were then traditionally devoured by the priests and faithful. On Sukkot, of course, they did this sitting in their sukkah, their tabernacles, or if you will, their wallless shelters. And this is because Leviticus tells us that we must sit in Sukkot tabernacles in memory of the exodus from Egypt. Modern researchers suspect that this is a later addition to biblical law and is a reinterpretation of a more ancient tradition. For one, this reason is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, nor does the Leviticus passage, which we read this week, allude to a specific event in the desert. Moreover, nomads in the desert use tents, not booths. They don't like sand in their eyes any more than the next guy. So where did the tradition of booths originate? 
One leading theory is that the booths are distant memories of farmers temporarily housing themselves under the impromptu shelters in the field to protect the crops during the harvest. The holiday is most certainly of agricultural origin. In fact, one of its names is the Festival of Ingathering. Another widely accepted theory is that during the holiday, the great multitude that came to Jerusalem for the festival would put up booths to live in during the week-long festivity. They filled the city with booths and thus gave the holiday the name Feast of Tabernacles. And while they were all celebrating together on the second day of Sukkot, everyone and women and children are specifically mentioned, were to attend a public reading of the law, the Torah, by the king in the temple of Jerusalem. This tradition was sadly discontinued in the year 70 with the destruction of the second temple by the Romans, who may not have been deeply religious in their own way, but they were certainly not members of the covenantal people. According to the prophet Zechariah, after the end of days, Sukkot will be the main holiday for all people, including those who are not members of the covenant. During this holiday, people the world over will come to Jerusalem and worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. For those who fail to show, we are told in the text of Zechariah, rain will be withheld. Their fields will wither, and they will not be able to grow anything. So you can see that the prophet Zechariah saw this festival of Sukkot as a harbinger of the world to come, when all peoples will come to Jerusalem to worship the one indivisible God. One of the best-known symbols of Sukkot is the four species known as the four types, the citron, the etrog, the closed frond of a palm tree, the lulav, bows of myrtle, and branches of willow, which are ceremoniously shaken during the holiday. But these are almost certainly a later addition to the holiday. In the context of Sukkot, The Bible does list four plants, but of the four, only the palm is identifiable in Leviticus 23, which, as you know, we read this week. The willow, the myrtle, the citron were only introduced to Palestine, ancient Israel, after the Babylonian captivity. It was only during the time of the Talmud between the 3rd and 6th century, that what can be rendered fancy fruit, pre-Hadar in Hebrew, was interpreted as an etrog, whose name together with the fruit itself was brought by the Persians from India by that time. The passage in Leviticus describing the four species doesn't actually say what is to be done with them. It just says we should take them. The book of Nehemiah, one of the historical books, 
interprets Leviticus as meaning take the branches and build booths from them. The Kararites, that sect of Jews who did not follow rabbinic Judaism, take Nehemiah's lead in rejecting the teaching of the rabbis, also interpret the passage in Leviticus as being an extension of the call to build booths. They therefore eschew the shaking of the four species that Jews have practiced since the time of the Second Temple. So you can see that there was some confusion in early rabbinic period as to what the purpose of the four species were. In addition to being king of Judea from 106 to 76 BCE during his reign, Alexander Janias was also the high priest. One year during Sukkot, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the king slash priest decided to show his allegiance to the Sadducees, a political party mainly composed of priests and wealthy Jews, over the Pharisees, a political party composed mostly of rabbis and the lower classes, regarding the Sukkot tradition, which involved pouring water mixed with wine over the burnt carcass of a lamb. The thing is, the Sadducees felt this water nonsense was a new and unwelcome uh, addition to the cultic worship. So to appease them and annoy the Pharisees, Instead of pouring the water on the lamb, as was the custom established by the rabbis, Alexander Janius poured water on his feet. The crowd at the temple surrounded Alexander Janius, obviously a crowd made up mostly of Pharisees, and they were shocked and dismayed by his actions. They responded by pelting him with the etragim, the citrons they held. This prompted the king to order the guards to slaughter those in attendance. We are told in the book of Nehemiah that 6,000 perished. Now, are there any other weird and unusual traditions? Well, it appears that there is an Ashkenazi, a Western European and Eastern European tradition of eating cabbage on Sukkot. This is because on the seventh day of Sukkot, Jews traditionally chant a prayer called Kol Mivaser, and Kol, which in Hebrew means voice, is the Yiddish word for cabbage. It is a holiday with many, many different origins. And as you can already tell, the traditions from the Torah morphed into a very different holiday than the book of Leviticus is supposed to speak to us. But what remains, even for the modern Jew, both in Israel and in the diaspora, is that the sukkah remains the essential symbol of the holiday. And so, we return to our Torah portion. 
The Torah says, from the Torah portion we would read this week, live in a sukkah for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in Sukkot so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in Sukkot when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Found in Leviticus 23, verses 42-43. In other words, the preeminent commandment refers to knowing. Knowing, meaning, reflecting, understanding, being aware. That would be considered an integral part of the mitzvah, not just building it, but to know the meaning of it. The word knowing in the Torah led to a conversation in the Talmud. Rabbah, one of the earlier rabbis of the Talmud, says a sukkah that is taller than 20 cubits, about 30 feet or 9 meters high, is invalid because when the schak, the agricultural covering or roof, is far above your head, you are unaware of it. That led to another conversation about what is a sukkah. So two rabbis of the second century argued. Rabbi Eliezer held that the sukkah represents the clouds of glory that surrounded the Israelite during the wilderness years protecting them from heat during the day and cold during the night, and bathing them with the radiance of the divine presence. This view, that the Sukkot were not literal booths, is reflected in a number of the commentaries. The 11th century northern French commentator Rashi takes it as the plain sense of the verse. So Sukkot is not a literal booth, but a figurative representation of the clouds of glory. Rabbi Akiva, however, one of the most important rabbis of the second century, says Sukkot means a sukkah, no more or no less a hut, a booth a temporary dwelling. It has no symbolism, he says. It is what it is. If we follow the first rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, then it is obvious why we we celebrate by making a sukkah. It is there to remind us of a miracle. Now, all three pilgrimage festivals are about miracles. Passover is about the miracle of the Exodus when God brought us out of Egypt with signs and wonders, according to the Torah. Shavuot, according to the oral tradition, is about the miracle of revelation at Mount Sinai when, for the only time in history, God appeared to an entire nation. And Sukkot, again, according to the rabbi, is about God's tender care of his people, mitigating their hardships 
of the journey across the desert. By surrounding them with his protective cloud as a parent wraps a young child in a blanket. Long afterward, the sight of the blanket evokes memories of the warmth of parental love. All very symbolic. Rabbi Akiva's view, the second alternative, is deeply problematic for some. If a sukkah is merely a hut, what was the miracle that it represented? There is no thing unusual about living in a hut if you're living a nomadic existence in the desert. If we think of the Bedouin living in Sinai or the Negev, they lived in huts until recently, and in fact, some still do. Why should there be a festival dedicated to something ordinary, commonplace, and non-miraculous? This is a question that the Jewish commentators have wondered about for decades and centuries. Roshbaum, the grandson of Rashi, says the sukkah was there to remind the Israelites of their past so that the very moment they were feeling the greatest satisfaction of living in the land of Israel, at the time of the ingathering of the produce of the land, they should remember their lowly origins. They weren't were a group of refugees without a home, living in a shanty town, never knowing when they would have to move on. Sukkot, this commentator, reminds us, is integrally connected to the warning Moses gave the Israelites at the end of life about the danger of security and affluence. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8, beginning with verse 11. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine homes and settle down, And when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. A powerful statement given the privilege of the Jewish community in so many uh, aspects. The festival of Sukkot, according to this commentator, exists to remind us of our humble origins so that we never fall into the complacency of taking freedom wherever we live, the land of Israel and its blessings, its yields for granted, thinking that it happened simply as a normal course of history. Of course, as is the tradition in Judaism, there is another way of understanding Rabbi Akiva. It lies in one of the most important lines in the prophetic literature. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2, which is read on the Jewish New Year of Rosh Hashanah, I remember the loving kindness of your youth. How, as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not yet developed. 
This is one of the very rare lines in the entire Hebrew Bible that speaks in praise not of God, but of the people Israel. How odd of God to choose the Jews, goes the famous rhyme, to which the answer is, not quite so odd, the Jews chose God. There have been many times fractious, rebellious, ungrateful, and wayward, but they had the courage to travel, to move, to leave security behind and follow God's call, as did Abraham and Sarah at the dawn of Jewish history. If the sukkah represents God's cloud of glory, where was the loving kindness of your youth? There is no sacrifice involved if God is visibly protecting you in every way and at all times, the prophet seems to say. But if we follow Rabbi Akiva and see the sukkah as what it is, the temporary home of a temporary homeless people, then it makes sense that Israel showed the courage of a bride willing to follow her husband. The imagery here is of Israel as the bride and God as the husband on a risk-laden journey to a place that she has never seen before. A love that shows itself in the fact that she is willing to live in a hut, trusting her husband's promise that one day they will have a permanent home. Sukkot becomes a metaphor, therefore, for the Jewish condition, not only during the 40 years in the desert, but also the almost 2,000 years spent in exile and dispersion. For centuries, Jews lived not knowing whether the place in which they lived would prove to be a mere temporary dwelling. Jews were exiled from England in 1290. And during the next two centuries from almost every country in Europe, culminating in the Spanish Inquisition in 1492 and the Portuguese in 1497, they lived in a state of permanent insecurity. Sukkot is the reminder of that insecurity. Today, Jews find faith in the people in the state of Israel. It is astonishing how Israelis have been able to live with an almost constant threat of war and terror since the state was born and not give way to fear. We sense even in the most secular Israelis a profound faith, perhaps not religious in the conventional sense, but faith nonetheless in life and future and hope. Israelis seem to be perfectly exemplifying what tradition says was God's reply to Moses when he doubted the people's capacity to believe. They are believers, the children of believers. And therefore, Sukkot is the only festival about which the Tanakh says that it will one day be celebrated by the entire world. The 21st century is teaching us what that means. We, as the Jewish people, live in challenging times. And the sukkah reminds us that even in these fragile times, times of insecurity, we have lived with insecurity for a millennia. And the supreme response to insecurity is to quote, 
when we leave behind the safety of our houses and sit in a real sukkah in huts exposed to the elements, to be able to do so and still say this is the festival of joy is the supreme achievement of faith and the ultimate anecdote to fear. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of our show on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Good morning and shalom.